0: It is the Michael Bourne identity. It's episode 13. Uh, another really cool guest. And uh, I've, I've just, it's, it's really cool to, I, I don't know, to have as many cool friends as I, as I do. I don't, I don't get it, but, but it, it, it's definitely a, a net positive uh, for me. Um, our next guest for episode 13 of the former Phillies great Michael Bourne identity. Uh, he is the drummer for the war on drugs, the drummer for clap your hands, say, yeah, drummer for the Pernice Brothers, John Wesley Harding, Strand of Oaks, The Bigger Lovers, a, a whole list of, of bands that you've probably heard of. Uh, and if you have not heard of those bands, then you need to hear those bands immediately. He is Patrick Burkery. Patrick, how you been? Hey, uh,
1: James, I'm good. I, I should sort of jump in and just clarify. I've never really been the drummer for anybody, or, or should I say, it, it's been quite a while since I've been the drummer for anybody. I'm kind of, to put this in baseball parlance, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm like a Mike Morgan, uh, Reggie Sanders type. I'm just, you know, a year or two here, a year or two <laughs> there, a year or two, you know. You're on that Trevor I'm Bauer one-year deal. Yeah, exactly. I'm I'm, a, you know, I'm always playing like I'm on a one-year deal. And uh, and it's, it's never been any falling out type thing. It's just that I've always generally uh, had the good fortune of being gainfully employed, having a full-time job. So I'm able to go out and tour, when I can you know here and there you know a few weeks here a few weeks there as able you know filling in for people or you know when people are between drummers or I can do recording things I guess the longest tenured thing I've probably had in recent memory where I was like the drummer in a band was like with Joe with Pernice you know that was Mm -hmm. like oh three to about oh seven and then we got back together last year and we're supposed to do some more shows this year but that
0: didn't happen for obvious reasons yeah so okay so so tell me tell me how that works i mean by this point like you're a you're a known commodity in the in the drumming world so is it to a degree to a degree to a degree okay you don't have to be modest here that's that's not what this is but it's the truth but thank you yeah um how does this work? how does that work is it like word of mouth like oh you need a drummer for this tour call pat up like is that how that works it's always ever been that. And I do kind of marvel. And you
1: know, I'm 48. So I've been doing this, you know, I, I started playing in bars when I was 14, 15 years old. <laughs> and my parents, you know, in high school, I would be out playing until no joke. I'd be getting home at like two in the morning on a school night, you know, and they'd be giving me, are you letting to curse on here? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They'd be giving me- shit about it. And I'd be like, you know, and I'd fight back and I'd be like, what do you mean? I got to be home at two in the morning on a weeknight, you know, you, fascists, you know, but it's just always gone on that. I've, I've just played and like one thing has led to another and that's led to another and that's led to another. So I kind of marvel these days, people really sort of like pimp themselves out on social media and they sort of, you know, get their CV out that way. And I've attempted to do that. And I have a website and I have this and I have that it's always ever been like oh yeah, so you play with them, you know, do you want to come do this? It's never been, it's always been somebody knowing me and then recommending me for another thing. It's, that's generally how it's happened. Like one thing has always led to another. And I'll be honest, you know, when the, when the Pernice thing kind of wound down in 2007, in it's, you know, first incarnation, I got a regular job at that point. I kind of figured at that point in my life, I was 35, I'd be kind of, okay, I've done the touring thing for a while. We did records. We sort of, our swing for the fences and it got as far as it did and I'm happy that I did that and I'll still play but you know it's probably going to be a situation where I just play a little bit here and there and have a full-time job but then a couple years later you know about a year or so later I started playing with the Danielson family and then that led to another thing and that led to another thing so I just found myself back in it you know to a pretty heavy degree while juggling like a full-time job and you know, for instance, like when the War on Drugs got a hold of me, that was 2012. They were between drummers, you know, and I had some touring coming up in like Japan and Australia and some stuff in the States. And um, so I did that with them and then they asked me to record with them for their next record. And then they ended up, you know, there's another guy that they'd been using before that they brought on as their full time drummer. But Adam still brings me in to do recordings with them. I played some stuff on the last couple records and I've recorded a bunch of stuff with them for whatever the next record's going to be whenever that comes out. So, you know, and clap your hands. I was, it was me and another drummer kind of splitting that for a few years behind Alec. Cause he had a job and I had a job and it was like, we sort of divvied up the workload and, you know, there's other instances. It's just, it's kind of like, you know, you're an NBA player on a 10 day contract. You're a journeyman reliever. There's all these like sort of sports metaphors I could use to put it in parlance for you. I'm like a substitute teacher. That's just sort of, hops from gig to gig to gig, but it's, it's great. And, you know, it's always been just, I've been really fortunate that I've never really had to do anything where I didn't like the music. It's always been really, um, I think world-class people, you know, reaching out and asking me to play with them. And I've just, I've been really fortunate, you know, and you, you develop really good lifelong friendships with people and, you know, you get to travel the world and see all these crazy places and, you know, play on some great records. So it's, Yeah.
0: Is, how much of a of a learning curve is it? So let's say that, that some band uh, has heard that, that you do good work and, and you came highly recommended and they say, we're going on tour. Uh, are you interested? Like, what's the process that goes into you actually getting re- and it, either what's the process of saying yes or saying no? And then like leading up to the actual tour, like how, do, how does that process work? Well,
1: the yes or no thing is generally um, I've only, you know, generally I've only ever said no to things if I just couldn't do them for like scheduling reasons or I couldn't get off of work or whatever the reason. I've, like I said, I've always been really fortunate that like good people have asked me to go play with them. So um, so there's that, you know, the money, you know, there's no money in this, you know, I mean, <laughs> unless you're doing it at like a really high level there's just no money in this. There's, there's money, but there's no money in this. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, I mean, right. it's just like, you know, so the, the money's never really been an issue, you know, but although I've probably done a few things that didn't pay as well as other things, just cause I liked it so much, you know, when I was looking for something to do and keep my chops up and keep my name out there. Um, and then there's the process of like, somebody asks you to do a tour. Okay. I'm going to do it. And then it's like, okay, you learn these songs and, um, Sometimes you have the benefit of everybody being in close proximity to one another and you can get together and rehearse four or five times, six or seven times for a tour. There's been tours where I've done like one rehearsal for, you know, and um, you just kind of like, okay, everybody knows their parts. Because a lot of times it's me going with somebody whose band is already together. They just need a drummer. Right. And the last thing they want to do Is rehearse these songs that they've been playing night in, night out for however many years with another guy. You know, they just okay. Do we know it? Does he know it? Does he fit? Yeah, great. One (laughs) time is good. And I'm, you know, not to chew my own horn, but I'm a really quick study, and I'm a really, I can sort of adapt to any situation. You know, I think, and honestly, I think that's why I get work. You know, I'm, I'm really, I can blend in pretty seamlessly. You know, I learn parts meticulously. I take instruction really well if they want things this way or that way. And I can just, you know, I can make you sound fairly quickly. Like the band's been together for 10 years. You know, I kind of know what the role of the drummer is. No one's really there to see me. They're there for the songs. And I'm just supporting the song. So it's, you know, and it's generally, yes, it's learning the songs. I make notes to myself and, you know, the first couple gigs of a tour, you might see me like looking over to the left, like looking off my notes. And then by usually by show three or four, I'm kind of, off book you know the training wheels are off and yeah so that's kind of the process and it's you know and it's a matter of also too as I get older you know I like to get a little bit of shape for a tour you know I like to do some cardio depending on what kind of music it is and you know if it's going to be like more of a high energy thing or a lower thing and I like to do a lot of playing just to make sure my hands are calloused and I'm ready to go it's you know it's not unlike spring training, I get, you know, you you really, you wanna sort of hit the ground running while you're training, but then you're training for the gig that's coming up. And I like to, uh, you know, I just like to know the songs. I like to be so prepared that like when I'm playing, I'm not even
0: thinking about anything I'm doing. I'm just, my hands and my feet are doing the work, you know? Is it, so if, if you're about to go, let's say you're about to go on tour, this band hires you, is it a week? Of listening to the songs? Is it a day or two? Is it like what's your what's the length of time it takes you to get like you said you're a quick study, like wh- like what's yeah. the time frame you're talking about?
1: Well, I'm a quick study, but I'll still take as much time as I can possibly get to learn stuff. You know, I mean it's usually I've never I don't think there's ever been a situation where I've been given like less than a week's notice for a tour, or less than a month's even. You know, I've been fortunate that like um generally when I've been asked to go do a tour it's like they're contacting you a couple months in advance Mm -hmm. now with recordings sometimes it's been a lot quicker and you know that's a different animal because when you're going to tour you're learning 20 songs 25 songs however many songs you're learning and the songs are going to be a certain way so you're learning them off the record or you're learning them you know and I mean if it's unrecorded stuff you're getting demos when it comes to going to record, you'll kind of know the stuff, but it could change drastically, you know, from what you're given in demo form to when you get in the studio. So it's kind of almost better when you're going to record to not learn the stuff too well or get married too much to whatever part you have or whatever the demos is, because, you know, there's a good chance things can change over the course of working something, working on something in the studio. And you know, sometimes in the studio, it comes really quickly, you know, and sometimes in the studio you're in for like a 13, 14 hour work day, you know, oh, wow. and it's just, oh yeah, I mean, you know, I'll tell you, we on drugs, you know, when you, when I work with them, you, you're, you know, it's, you're kind of starting at noon and you're walking out of there at like midnight, one, two in the morning, you know, you'll do like 30, 40 takes of a song. You're just kind of chasing it down, seeing how it feels, trying this, trying that. And, uh, it's, to me, it's fun. You know, I know some people get a little numb from playing the same thing kind of over and over and over and over again, but you know, that's part of their process. You know, that's part of Adam's mode, you know? So you just sort of, you adapt to that, you know, just as when I've recorded with Alec with clap your hands, say, yeah, you adapt to the fact that he'll want to record one song in four completely different ways, you know, oh wow, a fast, a fast version, a quiet version, uh, a version that sounds like green shirt off of, you know, armed forces, Elvis Costello, you know, a version that sounds nothing like that, you know, it's like, you're, so you have to sort of get in that mindset and then, you yeah, know, you get the mindset of people uh, there, you're going to record something. You're going to do two takes and you're like, can I listen back? And they're like, no, that's great. Next one. You know, and it's just <laughs> you're, you're, mov- you're moving that quickly. So, you know, I'm, for lack of a better term, as a gun for hire, you have to surrender to everybody else's process and not get too hung up in, well, wait a minute, I want to, you know, I want this and
0: I want that. And, you know, you just, okay, am I giving you what you need? Great. You know? So there there can be a whole lot of ego involved in, in something like that.
1: No, no, you know, you, you I mean... You've got to not be a pushover. You know they're bringing you know they're they're bringing you in. They're bringing me in for a reason. They like the way I play. They want what I bring. You know, brought to their music. Um, and you know, I think people also want my input. You know, I'm not just going to sit there like like a robot and just do what I'm told. You know, I'll sort of, you know, within you know just by me playing the way I play that's giving my input you know I do have a certain way of playing you know as opposed to another drummer they may have brought in for the same thing or that they worked with in the past but it's like sort of I don't I don't get too hung up on like oh you gotta let me get these licks in or you gotta let me you know I get you know sometimes I get bummed out after the fact like when I hear like the final mix or the final version they chose you'd be like oh man I wish they would have chose that other version because it had this fill or it had that snare sound or whatever, but you know, it's out of my hands. The minute I just learned I used to get hung up on stuff like that, but I've just learned the minute I walk out of the studio when I'm done, all right, it's completely out of my hands, you know. So that's that for me, that's the approach that works. I, you know, other people are different, I'm sure, but that's always been the way that's worked for me. And um, you know, just now, um, and and I should have really done this years ago, because this is certainly not a new way of working, but because of COVID, because of everybody quarantining and hunkering down, I've begun to learn the art of remote recording, you know, just working on my own. So I'm having people send me tracks and I'm putting drums to them and it's still a work in progress. You know, my technical skills, my engineering skills, my skills, you know, navigating my way around pro tools are not nearly where I'd like them to be, but I can have somebody send me a track and give them a fairly decent sounding drum track. I don't have like all the crazy top of the line gear, but I have enough to get by. So within that though, I'm learning kind of how to produce myself. You know, people are sending me tracks and sometimes you can share your session via the software and they can listen in as you're doing and you know, more of this, less of that, try this, you know, you know, more often than not though, I've just been blindly like playing on my own doing 10 or 11 different versions of something, giving them, all right, well, this take is kind of this way and this take is kind of this way and do with it what you want. But I've also got to be like, as I'm doing the takes, so is that really good enough or is that what I sign off on that? You know, and so I find myself, you know, as I was the other night playing for four hours straight in my basement, you know, it's <laughs> just like sort of take after take after take after take because I can really go down the rabbit, my own, you, you go down a rabbit hole of my own making, you know?
0: Yeah. But I love it. I reason- it's, it's great. I recently heard a story, um, and, and apparently, I don't know. I don't know how legendary this is. I'd never heard the story before. That <clears throat> Mick Jagger at one point referred to Charlie Watts sort of offhandedly, and he said, like, "You know, my drummer." Da uh, da 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 da, and kind yeah. of dismissive. And Charlie yeah. Watts went to his hotel room, yes. uh, put on his his nicest suit, went and punched Mick Jagger in the face, and said, "You're forgetting. You're, you're forgetting at,
1: You're forgetting out. You're
0: leaving out one part of that legend." Okay, I was gonna ask what yeah. what is is that a, is that the legendary story like tell me tell me how that story actually I went think, down. I think,
1: and the funny thing about this story, you would think this would have if if, it, if the story that I have heard is to be believed, you would think oh this happened in the seventies or the sixties when everybody's just at the height of their mania. Supposedly this happened like in the late eighties when these guys are <laughs> like well into their forties and like I think they were in Amsterdam as the the legend goes they're in Amsterdam or working on a record or doing promotion, or they're, they're, they're in Amsterdam for some reason. Mick gets drunk, calls Charlie his drummer, Char- and it's one in the morning, or it's two in the morning. Charlie goes back to his hotel room, shaves. That's the part you left, supposedly he <laughs> shaved, okay? Because, you know, you want to be clean shaven when you hit Mick Jagger. Yeah. Put on like his nicest, like Saville Row suit, you know, because Charlie, this is like in the eighties, and Charlie was always like impeccably dressed. If you can remember the video, I think for like Harlem Shuffle. Yep. he's got on like a really, you know, he, he's he's very Natalie attired, and yeah, supposedly he went to Mick's room and like punched him out, and said Yo, my singer, you know, or <laughs> something like that. Um, whether or not it's true, I can, I believe it's happening. You know, I, okay, I don't, I am loath to name drop. No, I, I want to hear it. I really am, but Mick Jagger has heard my drumming before.
0: What? Let's
1: hear it. Yeah. Okay. So about six or seven months ago, I'm ready to go to bed one night, like one in the morning, you know, and I just, I put my phone, turning my phone off to, and this is one of the reasons I don't have any technology in my bedroom anymore because of stuff like this. So uh, I'm getting ready to turn my phone off to go to bed. And I get a text from Adam, the singer from We're on Drugs. He's like, Hey man, it's a long story, but uh, Mick Jagger really loves your drumming on Red Eyes. What? The, the We're on Drugs song, Red Eyes. And I'm like, what? And I texted back right away, I said, what are you talking about? And, like, he doesn't text me back. So like the whole night, oh, I'm like, does he use this for like a workout routine? Because I'm pictured Mick, you know, doing all the this and the that, <laughs> the, the workout stuff. And he's standing in the mirror because he posts these videos of when he's getting ready to go on tour of him, you know, doing his warmups. But as it turns out, um, they released a reissue of Goathead Soup over the summer. Was it Goathead Soup? Yeah, Goathead Soup and they commissioned Adam to remix a song called Scarlet, which was never released on the original album, never released in any form, but it was a song I think like Jimmy Page plays guitar on, and I believe Rick Gretsch played bass on, and it was like Mick and Keith. So they wanted, and it was sort of like a let you hear me knocking kind of vibe, but they wanted like, um, they wanted Adam to remix it. And Mick apparently referenced in particular the drums on Red Eyes. Like he wanted that kind of energy. So if you were to hear the original version of Scarlet, it's just like bah, 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 bah. It's just like that kind of mid-tempo groove. The remix that Adam did is like bah, bah, like if you know Red Eyes, it's like that sort of unrelenting kind of metronomy thing. Uh-huh. And had yeah, apparently Nick liked the drumming on Red Eyes, so that's really cool. Look, man, I can barely make my rent most months, and you know my <laughs> goddamn garbage disposal backed up last night, and I got. So much shit going on in my life you don't even want to know about, but you know, I can always hang my hat on the fact that Mick Jagger liked my drumming on that one song. <laughs>
0: so that's that would get through a dark day yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, that's that, super
1: well, cool. Yeah, well that and two dollars will get you on the subway in Philly. So.
0: <laughs> um one of <clears throat> this has only happened to me a couple of times where I've where I've watched a movie and and when it was over, I started it over and and watched it all the way through again. Yeah, and and one of those movies was Whiplash.
1: Yeah, <laughs> tell not me,
0: give me the drummer's take. Yeah, give me the drummer's take on that
1: movie. I the first words out of my mouth when the credits started rolling, I turned to the person I was seeing the movie with, I, um, and I said, uh, "Yeah, jazz guys were always the biggest assholes," <laughs> and in, in my experience, they were. You know, because I was always a rock guy. I was never never had any illusions of being a jazzer or a fusion guy or anything like that. I was a rock and roll drummer from the jump. That was always what I wanted to do. Now, growing up, you know, when you're in small ensemble band in school or symphonic band, you're playing marches and I was playing, you know, like some pretty easy big bandy kind of swing type things. But it was just in my experience as I got older, you know, and the jazz people I encountered, they were like the most narrow minded, like dismissive, you know, like down on rock people where I was always looking to like, you know, as I'm getting older, I still I'm always I'm reading the Miles Davis autobiography right now. I'm always looking to learn more about jazz. You know, it's um, a lot of it's a mystery to me. You know, my knowledge is like this deep. You know, I know some Monk. I know some Miles. I know some Roland Kirk. I know some Coltrane, but I don't go that deep on it. You know? Yeah. But uh, yeah. So that was my first takeaway from it. I went back and watched it again because I was asked to write about it for um, Salon, the website. So I wanted to go back and just watch it again like with a little more of sort of an analytical, critical eye. And just, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of nonsense. You know, I just don't think that a guy who's got a gig conducting a band at Carnegie Hall is going to, like, throw the gig to teach a lesson to this drummer who like, you know, got him fired. Or I don't even remember the plot line, but I think he yeah. somehow got him fired from whatever that fictitious school of music was. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah. So it was kind of whatever. I just, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it was pretty accurate the way I
0: remember jazz dudes, man. Cause they were, yeah,
1: That's they, were funny. Cool yeah. yeah they were
0: not cool to me. And I feel like I'm in the same boat with, I mean, obviously I, I I'm an appreciator of, of music and, and, and all its varieties. Yep. Jazz is one of those things that, and I'm, I'm sort of like, kind of exactly I've, I've listened to some Miles Davis, uh, Coltrane, Dave Brubeck, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, I, I like Charles Mingus, you know, but sure. it's one, it's one of those, those genres that I really want to like it way more than I actually, it's like the, yeah. it's like the NBA, or me and hockey. Like, I want to really get into it, but I, yeah. I, I just never really do.
1: No, I, I really love it and do appreciate it. And just the sound of the drumming. There, there's so many great, you know, jazz drummers. And I do, I like to swing stuff. And I grew up with a father. My father loved um, big band, you know, and he loved the sort of the Sinatra stuff that Nelson Riddle was, was orchestrating and leading the band. So, you know, I had an appreciation for that kind of stuff. But, you know, Miles, like, uh, you know, um, In a Quiet Place and um, Sketches of Spain and things like that are beautiful, you know, just beautiful porgy and bass. I can't really get with things like Bitches Brew. I don't really like the electric stuff because it hints too much at the fusion-y type thing, which, is, which was to come, and I never really sort of got into that. But, you know, that sweet spot of, like, jazz from the 50s and early 60s, I think, is, is what I gravitate toward. More than anything yeah. really and yeah it's, it's but i by no means consider myself like an aficionado or an expert or i'm a novice you know and i've played with people who are really really into it and you know i wanted to learn more about dizzy gillespie and people like that they really sort of pointed me in the right direction of things to listen to and i'm just always learning you know about music and and that's you know jazz has been is a continual part of my learning curve you know i'm always trying to educate myself more about it and become a better
0: listener and appreciate, you know, right. appreciator of it. Yeah. A couple more, maybe one or two more music questions. And then, <clears throat> and then we'll get to, we'll get to some sports stuff. Uh, what are your favorite songs? Of course. To, what, are, what are your favorite songs to play? Like, like actual, like when, when you're trying to, you're warming up, you're like, I'm going to play like, what are the coolest songs oh. for for you as a drummer to play?
1: Yeah, there's, I don't really have like any sort of, Warm up song. I always and I've been doing this since I was like 16 years old. Nine times out of ten, when I sit down behind a drum kit, if it's like to try it out in a music store or a, and I'm not a kind of dude that goes around music stores playing drums, but just you know, sometimes you <laughs> want to get behind a kid of drums in a music store, you know, or if I'm just sitting behind a kid to get levels or I'm doing whatever, I'll start playing Spanish Castle Magic by Hendrix, like da 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 da. And it goes in and, hey, bell, 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 because it's got a little bit of everything. Got that uh-huh. big, sweet Mitch Mitchell groove. It's got some, you know, rolling around the kit. Um, That, I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea by uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions. Uh, Pete Thomas is, you know, definitely like a top five all-time drummer for me. I've gotten to know him a little bit over the last few years, and he's a great, funny dude. And uh, if you know that song, and I'm just going to tie this back to what I just referenced, I've heard I want to go to Chelsea thousands of times, you know, played it a ton of times. I've heard Jimi Hendrix fire thousands of times and played it hundreds of times. I never once made any kind of connection between those two songs. Pete explained to me that his part and I don't want to go to Chelsea. Like, if you know it, it's like boom, 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 it's fire cut in half. It's like the part to fire in halftime. Like the... Bow, bow, like he's big because he loves Mitch Mitchell. So he's... I don't want to do Chelsea. is him playing the bit to fire like in halftime. That's cool. Yeah. So that's another one I love. And here's another one that I always love to play and that I learned of a connection recently that I never put together. Um, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers are like my Beatles. You know, they're like... 1A of all time for me. And Stan Lynch is like one of my favorite drummers of all time. He is another guy I've gotten to know a little bit. All the drummers kind of know one another, you know. Uh So, uh, you know, uh, Breakdown is another song like I'll just sort of you know, like to just sit down and play. I've heard Breakdown thousands of times. I've heard uh, In My Life by the Beatles thousands of times. The beat from Breakdown is essentially the beat to In My Life. Just kind of like slowed down and like... Interesting. Like... You know, that's the sort of in my life thing, and breakdown is boom, 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 so, you know, so it's kind of you know the the I guess you would call it the anthropology of some of these sort of drum parts. It's like pretty fascinating because everybody rips off everybody, you know. It's all, it's, I, I, and I don't know why people get so hung up on it. You know, it's like, oh, that song sounds just like oh uh, black dog yeah of course it does i mean it's a great <laughs> song of course you're gonna rip it off <laughs> of course, i have speaking of black dog i have found myself recently going back and listening to so much classic rock and appreciating it like i'm 17 or 16 or 15 all over again like bad yeah. company barner and, and steely dan i don't know what i've just over the last year man I, i've been you know Uh, you know i'm not the first one to say this but they don't call it classic rock for nothing you know and i mean like early 80s genesis i'm like oh my god like misunderstanding is a masterpiece you know i'm really (laughs) like i'm saying things i never thought i'd say as a 48 year old but you know
0: i've talked about this a couple of times on here but i'm I'm going back and listening to the rolling stone top 500 albums uh, oh yeah yeah in order from from 500 to one Okay. What well, what is one? Uh is it Revolver or like Jody it, Mitchell Blue or let me I can actually I've got it yeah. I've got it pulled up because I'm I'm keeping a sp- I'm, cuz I'm a huge dork. I have a spreadsheet of oh, what the album is dork. and when I listen to it yeah. and any thoughts I had. Uh what's going on Marvin Gaye? Oh uh, yeah, yeah,
1: all right. Yeah. Well, that's a good one.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, that's pretty good. And
1: that's another thing too. If it's just a quick I um played What's Going On, you know, I do these rooftop shows, we were talking earlier with with some friends here in Philly, you would be doing them during COVID. And we did a a show where we did What's Going On. You know, What's Going On is a a song I've heard a million times in my life, never played it. And just like sitting down and listening to that song, man, it's like, it's incredible. There's not much at all going on on that record. You know, there's bass, (laughs) there's drums, there's like some strings, there's the backing vocals. But it's just, man, it's so beautifully recorded and played. And like the bass part on that song is, is just brilliant. You know, I've, I've really developed an appreciation, I think, the last year, year or two, just going back and listening to these records that you've heard a million times. Yeah. And just kind of dissecting them, you know, getting really granular with them. And oh, man, like the, 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 just every element of this song is like, you know, we're talking about the Rolling Stones, man, like Jumpin' Jack Flash and like Street Fighting man how, like, acoustic guitars are, like, woven into those songs. You don't really notice them, but they are right there in the mix, you know. Like, you know, the electric guitars are the most prominent, but there's just these layers of acoustics, you know. I don't think Keith, in particular, ever got enough credit for being, like, a great architect of guitar parts and sounds, you know, during that sort of, like, even leading up to, like, Sticky Fingers and, Beggar- and, and Exile, you know, things on, like, you know, out of our heads and, um, beggars and let it bleed and, um, all those kinds of records. I thought he really put together great guitar parts on those records.
0: I'm, and I'm, one of the things I'm really excited about is going back and, you know, I, I've heard XL on main street, you know, a, a hundred times, but going back yeah. and actually like consciously listening to, it, and it's been easier. You know, I think I've, I've listened to like 24 albums, you know, this week. Like okay. alone. And what, and if, what have them, you,
1: you what, yeah, what, have, what have you been, uh, what, what's appealed to you the most?
0: Well, so the whip there's there's one instance where I think the whiplash from the previous album to, to the one I listened to. Like, okay, so like for example, number four eighty-seven is Black Flags Damaged. Okay, yeah, I don't really know that. I mean, I know a couple Black Flag songs, but I don't know the records really. Not right? my thing, like at all, yeah. but I'm gonna listen to it all the way through. The yeah, next yeah. album, four eighty-six, is John Mayer's continuum. And hmm. going from Black Flags. That's to John one of the, May- the five
1: hundred greatest records?
0: Yeah. What's on, are there hits on there? I don't really, like, I know his his hits. John Mayer? Yeah. It's the Waiting on the World to Change album. Okay,
1: yeah. So my I note- guess, Steve, yeah, Steve Jordan's probably
0: on drums on that, I would
1: imagine, who's, you know, killer
0: drummer. Yeah, my, I think, my, I'll say, my, my note on that John Mayer album was, I probably think I liked it way more than I actually did because I hated Black Flag so much. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a bit of... Game theory, I guess. <laughs> in a way, really, you know? But um, like one of the well, things- John Mayer is an incredible
1: guitar player, but just no, the for music sure. kind of really. And I think he's great with the Dead. Like I've seen some of the stuff that he's. I think he's like a great fit for them. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. Just, yeah, his songs
0: just kind of aren't really my thing, but I can appreciate what that guy does completely. He's a great player. Yeah, uh, Big Star. It turns out I like Big Star way more uh, than I thought. It's a great band. So I'm. That's one yeah. of the things. Like, like so. Like this morning, I started off with a Daddy Yankee. Album, and I was like, this was 45 minutes too long. Uh, but Big Star, that was that was that was really good. So, I, I, yeah, that's what I'm looking forward to with this. That's a fun exercise, yeah, 500, yeah. And so, you, yeah, you're a noted Tom Petty appreciator, you're also a noted Lindsey Buckingham appreciator. What is it about Lindsey Buckingham?
1: Yeah, Yeah. well, it's, it's weird, you know, like I don't think, I think as I've gotten older. I've gotten a little away from the Lindsay thing and if for no other reason, just because I think I kind of overdosed on it and became such a, like a Lindsay defender. And then (laughs) he he was just one of these guys. It was like hiding in plain sight. It's not like Fleetwood Mac was some obscure. Yeah. It's not like Fleetwood Mac was big star, you know I mean? Fleetwood Mac is like one of the biggest bands of all time. But I don't think anybody really recognized like Lindsey Buckingham's sort of like hand in it, really. They kind of knew yeah. go your own way and, you know, that was it. I mean, Stevie Nicks is like the star of the band, you know, right. for, for you know, there's really no disputing that. I also think Christine McVie is probably like the most unheralded member of that band because, you know, people seem to focus on Stevie and Lindsey and the Stevie Lindsey thing. To me, Christine McVee is kind of like the George Harrison of Fleetwood Mac When you break it down, man, I think Christine McVie songs are probably my favorites, you know, and the way she kind of worked with Lindsay, like singing harmony on songs like um, Hold Me or like World Turning or I think they work better together to to my ears than Lindsay and Stevie. But, you know, what drew me to Lindsay? I mean, I just I've always had this appreciation of like Brian Wilson and 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 artists like that who were the architect of a band's sound. You know, it was a band but there was kind of one person churning the wheels, you know, and Lindsay, I think is just such a consummate, like sort of all around, or like guitar player, producer, arranger, songwriter, singer, and just had such an interesting guitar playing sensibility where you couldn't really say, oh yeah, he's influenced by Hendrix, or oh yeah, he's influenced by Keith Richards, or whoever, that that finger picking thing, you know, came from like this like sort of early rock and roll scotty moore elvis thing you know and also like a real kingston trio kind of folk sensibility and i thought that really lent itself to, to like a rock context it was really like an interesting counterpoint so that's what always appealed to me about him he was just a bit of an outlier in terms of like rock and roll big rock and roll bands he, he was different and uh but i kind of you know i've just lost interest in like his solo records in the last bunch of years he's just kind of like a little too kind of fallen in love with his home recording lo-fi, <laughs> you know, super noodly guitar. And, you know, I mean, give Tusk and law and order and, you know, the, the first few Mac albums with him all day long, you know, he, holiday road.
0: He's on the new, uh, I know he plays on the new killers record. Yeah. A couple of songs. So that's, I thought that was interesting. Cause I yeah, remember like, yeah. An interview was like, how, how do you just go about, like, calling up Lindsey Buckingham? And they were like, uh, someone in the room had his number and yeah. just texted him. You as
1: I don't really know anybody that big or that famous, but, you know, I, I kind of know people in bands as we do. And you just, you know, you hear stories about, how, oh, well, how did that happen? Oh, I don't know. So-and-so had his number and we just called him. It's never like this. <laughs> sort of the machinations that you think it is it's basically yeah, people just knowing each other and yeah making a phone call or like you know casually reaching out and uh but yeah when you hear Lindsay on that one killers track there's like no mistake it's him you know right. what i mean it's like it's Lindsay.
0: yeah all right so you oh all right i guess i guess i'll preface this with this yeah. i i'm houston sports all the way um hey, not so much
1: Real quick, remember when the biggest problem in the world was that, like, the Astros cheated in the World Series in the playoffs? <laughs> and that was, like, right about this time last year, right, where all that shit was coming down? It was and, that, it was one and year that was ago the, yesterday. Yeah. I mean, granted, there was impeachment, the other impeachment going on at that time,
0: too, but – I mean, and you know, that was you know for many, that was the the biggest problem in the world. Yeah, but, I've 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 said it a couple times. <laughs> I regret saying about this time last year. I wish something would come along that would make people stop talking oh. about the Astros. Yeah, well, guess what? <laughs> yeah. So this is this might be my fault. Um, yeah. But uh, I've always, and, and I've been to Philly a couple of times, and and one of the times Have I got a fun my time in Philly. My cousin and I got to hang out with you yeah. on a night that I vaguely remember. And, and a, <laughs> another time was, was working for the hall of fame. And we came, the Phillies and Astros were playing and I Remember that game. We came to, I can't, I know that like Willie Tavares, <clears throat> excuse me, had, had recently finished up a 30 game hit streak. Yeah. And the hall of fame collects artifacts from 30 game hit streaks and, and more. And, but I can't remember. There was somewhat, there was something that we were going to get from the Phillies. And I, I cannot remember I think it had something to do with Cole Hamill's. Uh, this would have been 2006.
1: It was September 2006. I, re- I, you and I have talked about this game, and you
0: can't believe I remembered this game. But it was, I think, it was Labor Day. It was. It was Labor Day 2000. Like your encyclopedic memory of of Phillies baseball games. Yeah, is absolutely phenomenal. So I was there, but I need you because to. Because I
1: remember vividly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the game was like at four o'clock, and I remember like I was painting a room that day because it was Labor Day. I was like, "All right, got to be done by four so I can watch the game." Hamill started, might have been facing Oswald.
0: I think it, I, I, I think, think it was it was Clemens. I was think. it
1: Clemens? Okay, yeah, it was Clemens. Okay, so the I think the Phillies won in extra innings. I think Utley like hit a walk off home run in the tenth or something. Right. I don't remember it as well as I used to, but yeah, you were your mind was blown that I was like, "Oh yeah, that was." You it's know, phenomenal. Um, Cause I was yeah. there
0: and you're telling me details about, about what it was, but I've always felt kind of like, and I don't know if it's just who I kind of became Twitter friends with early on. Uh, but like, I follow a whole bunch of Philly mm-hmm. sports people. And I've always yeah. thought that if I wasn't a Houston fan, I would, and, and I, I could be a a, a a sports free sports fan, free agent. I would go with Philly sports. Tell me why that's a terrible idea. <laughs>
1: Well, I think it depends on the sport, you know? Um, Why is that a terrible idea? Well, I don't know, man. It's it's all... I don't think it's a terrible idea. Philly is a great sports city, man. There is no place you'd rather be when you're winning than Philly. Because you, man, this city loves you like nobody's business, man. Like, it, it really... I mean, they, they love those 07 to '11 Phillies teams. You know, the Utley, Howard, Rollins, Hamels teams. Um, the, uh, yeah, the I mean, the Eagles are the team in this town. You know, and it's so it's just such a die thing. But that's football because it's once a week and it's right. you can dissect it all week. And you know, it's it's all over the talk shows or whatever. You know, um, Sixers is really it's a really good basketball town. And, but that's not just the NBA. Philly's traditionally always been like a big college hoops town, too. Mm-hmm. And the Flyers have always been like the cult fave. You know, the Flyers are always like the underground thing, but the people that are into the Flyers, man, are so into the Flyers, you know? Yeah. So there's really, you know, it's, it's a and yeah, and the Phillies are more like, I mean, I'm a diehard baseball fan. I'll watch every game I can, even in the horrible seasons. I just love baseball and I love the Phillies. But that's probably the first sport that people fall off of you know, fall off the bandwagon when the team's not doing great. Probably followed by the Flyers and the Sixers. Eagles, people are in. You know, there's just no no getting around it. You're in. You know, yeah. you're not getting off. Um, but it's been interesting to see with the Eagles in particular. You know, they just won the Super Bowl a couple years ago, three years ago now, I guess. And, uh, you know, um, it's just been a, a really bad year here. You know, Carson Wentz, had a really bad year, but I think everything is sort of so distorted, you know, when you're playing games in front of empty parks and right. You know, I just, my whole view of things right now, if you were to do it right now, I'd, I'd say wait until the world opens back up again, because then you're going <laughs> to really experience, You know, if you are considering this James, or if you get transferred to, you know, Philly or one of the suburbs for some reason, you know, <laughs> gig up here. I would say wait until the world opens back up again, because you're going to get a much better perspective of what it's really like, you know? It's a fantastic sports town and it always has been. And I grew up, you know, in the age where like for, you know, I remember in 1980, the year the Phillies won the world series, you know, the uh, Eagles went to the super bowl, Sixers were in the finals. The flyers were in the finals. You know, there was, when I was a kid, you know, we were kicking ass every year in every sport You get very spoiled and then came a pretty fallow period, you know, particularly with the Phillies for a long time after that. So it's, you know, if you grow up in it, you kind of don't shake it really. Yeah. You know, you, you know, you get older and your priorities shift obviously, or sometimes they don't. I used to live down the street from a guy that had a giant goalpost on his van that he would put on there on Eagles game day. I used to see him and his son, like walking down the street, you know, so <laughs> you know, there are some pretty, uh, you know, diehard people here, but yeah, it's, I would say there's nothing. I am not going to, uh, you know, try to scare you off. We, we will accept you. Come
0: you know it, well it, it won't happen with uh it won't happen with with I'm not going to if I haven't left the Astros by now it's it's not going to happen um yeah
1: how, how do you well how conflicted were you i mean and believe me man there's been some absolute scumbags that have played for teams in philly and i've rooted for the teams but just been like oh god this guy like you know yeah Well, I, I did stop watching the eagles probably for like four years, five years when they signed Michael Vick, like I was, Hey, right on. I I do believe, you know, within reason, every man has uh, every right to rehabilitate himself. I'm a big believer in that, but you know, as a dog lover, as an animal lover, as a dog owner, there was just no way I could get behind that, Yeah. you know, and I, I just checked out on that team for a few years, you know, and that's sort of,
0: you know, that was my breaking
1: point, but yeah. So with you, with the Astros, like how,
0: how were things tainted? I mean, how did that feel? It feels, I mean, and uh, it feels, it feels a little bit tainted. Um, and I understand the coming at it from the angle of, well, you know, there was this report in USA Today that the Brewers said the Dodgers were stealing their signs using video. Um, and I, you know, I understand that, you know, it's, all these articles written before the scandal even broke, like the, the video rooms are MLB's biggest problem. Uh, and that's going to yeah. be the source of the next big scandal. Um, but it it's also, and, and I, I understand that. And, but it, I feel like it's a little bit different than the steroid era where <clears throat> you don't know how many guys were actually using steroids. So, you know, if you're just the best, then you belong in the hall of fame. Yeah. And let's assume
1: I, there were players on every team yeah. that were using. Cause I think that's, I think that was kind of the case.
0: Yeah. And so, but, but with this, like it's, it's like I'm 40. Uh, I'd waited basically my whole life. I've never been a, a fan of a of a, like a hardcore fan of a team that actually won anything. Yeah. Um, when I was, I, I was not, I, I cannot, I, I, we lived in Houston when the Rockets won back-to-back championships, but I, I cannot claim that that was one of the happiest days of my life. Cause I was, I just, that just wasn't really my thing. So the Astros won the world series and it's the first time that I've, I've experienced what it's like to actually win it all. And then, you know, two years later, you know, not only, uh, did you have a rotation of Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, Zach Greinke and and managed to lose every home game in the world series when one of them would have gotten you another win, but that also losing in the world series came on the heels of like the Brandon Taubman, like, you know, the, well, right. That's what I, I was going to reference. That I mean, yeah. <laughs> So what a scumbag, you know. <laughs> go from Brandon Tobman to losing the World Series to the Mike Fires yeah. article dropping in like three right. weeks. Yeah, and and it like I did not watch is well, and, and part of it was a technology issue because I live in the blackout area uh, for Astros oh, games. Oh right, right, right. Okay, yeah. And so I had a laptop that I had <laughs> like a an IP scrambler on and. and <laughs> And I didn't that, even know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like five bucks a okay. month and you can scramble your IP address and watch. And I, so I, I get MLB TV, get the IP scrambler and I could, and it worked out great because, you know, if we're sitting on the couch watching TV, I can have the Astros game on mute in front of me and, you know, yeah. keep an eye on it. And, and I don't hog the TV 162 nights out of the summer. Um, well, that laptop crept out. And I, I only had my school computer, and I felt real iffy about putting an IP scrambler on a school district issued yeah. piece of tech. So I didn't watch when the playoffs Mr. came around. Mister Yask-
1: Mr. Yasko, why is there a Russian soccer game on your
0: laptop? <laughs> exactly. Um, so I didn't watch nearly as much Astros this year, mainly because of the technology, but also I, I didn't have the motivation. No, I'm right there with you. Yeah. And so, like uh, everything that's going on, and at that point it was just, you know, basically just COVID and the response yeah. to it. I live in Texas, um, yeah. and so, yeah. you know, I went to the store this morning, and a quarter of the people that were there didn't have masks on. And Are and I say, just like so you can go in a store there without a mask. It depends. Basically, it's enforceable as long as someone, as long as an employee is willing to enforce it. Holy fuck.
1: Yeah. I mean, around here, man, you have to wear, I mean, there are, you know, exceptions here. I mean, you're supposed to wear a mask everywhere around here. 99.9% of the people I've encountered have been, you know, you hear from people, there are certain businesses that are just like, whatever, you know, yeah. just, you know, whatever. And, but yeah, in, in my neighborhood, in, in the town, uh, you know, everybody I've seen in public, on the street, whatever, wearing a mask, you know, I just, I can't fathom not.
0: You know? I, I can't. Yeah, no. I can't. And I mean, it's an overwhelm and I don't we don't live in the in the you know, we're, we're not in Dallas. We're not in Houston. You know, we're yeah. not in Austin or San Antonio. So but I, I, just, I think there's a sense of like no employee wants to be the next one to get put on Twitter. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. The, yeah. it's just the climate. It's, it's not worth if one person doesn't have their mask on and everybody else does. Does right. it really is it worth getting into a fight over this? Uh, I don't. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So uh yeah, no, everything's everything's dumb. Um, yeah. but <laughs> yeah. the uh, yeah, so I didn't want my motivation for watching baseball was pretty low. When the playoffs came around, I thought the <clears throat> I thought the Astros were gonna get run by the twins in that yeah. wild card round because they just proved that they couldn't hit like all year right. long. They they were had a hard time hitting. Uh and then when they got past the twins, it's like Ooh, okay. And then, you know, the Astros sort of go out and smoke the A's and, right. and, and I'm right back. And then they immediately lose oh, sure. the first three games to the Rays and then they make that. Yeah. And it's the most Houston thing to go down. 0-3, force a game seven and lose yeah. game seven. Like that's the that most was, Houston sports. Thing. Yeah.
1: That was so wild. And then, you know, the Dodgers coming back from three down against the Braves. I mean, you know, by the time the playoffs rolled around, I did kind of get a little into it. The, the, the Phillies this year. It was a mix of everything going on in the world empty stadium, just some other stuff going on in my life. You know, my, um, my attention really wasn't there. And then they started going on a run and I'm like, all right, all right. You know, and then the bullpen, I, I just, you know, it's well-documented how historically bad the Phillies historically
0: bullpen bad bullpen.
1: Yeah. I have never, and I'm telling you, man, I've seen the 96 Phillies. I saw the 80, whatever fit, you know, I've seen horrible teams. With horrible bullpens. I have never seen anything like this. I've never seen any. You would think they were throwing games. I mean, it was that bad. And so, like that. And yet, and yet, they still, on the last day of the season, you know, four games under 500, still had a chance to make the playoffs. Right. And at that point, it's just like, no, I'm not into this. But yeah, I'm going to watch, you know. And then, you know, I, I think another thing that bummed me out, man, was just seeing how well Sixto Sanchez looks, you know, with the Marlins. I mean, I don't – look, JT Real Muto, best catcher in the game, no doubt about it. There's some arguments to be made for the fact that, you know, Sixto Sanchez is a diminutive, hard-throwing, right-handed pitcher, and historically guys like that really don't hold up well over the long haul. You know, Pedro maybe, you know, being a pretty obvious exception. Yeah. But the – I, I don't get the, the thought process behind that deal. It was not like the Phillies were like a catcher away – from going to the World Series and needed to unload the best pitching prospect. You know, it's just that deal. And they historically are just horrible at developing starting pitching, you know? And over the last however many years, you know, since that run with Utley and Ruiz and Hamels and Howard and Rollins, all these amazing homegrown players, they just haven't developed anybody really. You know, Hoskins and, um, you know, Spencer Howard might turn out to be something, you know, Alec Bone looks like he's going to be the real deal. Uh, Scott Kangry, man, I don't know. He was, you know, he was going to be our Dustin Pedroia. I can't mm-hmm. believe I just said our. I hate people that say that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to find myself $20. But he was going to be the Phillies' Dustin Pedroia. You know, they signed him to like the six-year extension before he even had a bat. And he just looks – I think he fell victim to um, a couple things. I think he fell victim to being moved around from position to position. And I think you look at some of these guys, him and Hoskins in particular, you look at them at the plate and they're just being given so much information. You can just see the wheels turning as they're at at bat to the point where they just can't react to a fastball. You know, they're thinking, okay, uh, in an O2 count, he's going to throw me a slider away 30% of the time, but he also might come up and in 40% of the time. And none of these guys look just geared up to attack, you know? That's what I really liked about Alec Bone's approach. He, he just went up there attacking fastballs. You yeah. know, and the league will adjust to that, and, you know, hopefully he'll make adjustments. I like Hoskins' approach, that approach of, like, you know, working deep counts, you know, making the pitcher sort of come to you. But I think with that, hitters sometimes lose the instinct to just be ready to attack a fastball when it comes early in the count. So, you know, there's just a couple other things with baseball now that I'm just like, eh, like – The whole sort of uppercut swing plane it's really taken away like gap to gap hitters, you know, like these line, line to line guys, man. And those were always, always my favorite players. Jimmy Rollins, Chase Utley, these guys that were just spraying doubles into the gap and running, you know, man, that to me was baseball, you know. And yeah, I love a home run. I love a guy that draws a walk. I love seeing a strikeout but you need more than that. And, you know, it, it's, it's, and it's so well-documented obviously how baseball is just you losing a younger generation. Right. And we're probably, okay. So I'm generation X, are you X or?
0: I was born in 80. I don't know okay, what that means. So
1: that's, I, I don't know what that is, but you know, guys, your age and maybe a little younger might be like the last generation that really, you know, has an affinity for baseball. Right. On, on any kind of series. And I get it it's a slow game. It's getting slower every year, no matter what they're doing with like pitching changes and the DH. I, you know, you sit down for a game, you're in for three and a half hours. Yeah. And you know, with a guy like me with nothing else going on sometimes, oh, okay, cool, man. I'm in, you know, Yeah. but it's just, you know, I, I, I am worried about it and Theo Epstein has had a lot of good things to say about it. And I, I just saw today he's going to work uh, for MLB I think with ideas, yeah, implementing ideas to speed things up are probably part of his uh, mo. But yeah, I'm a little worried, and I miss guys stealing bases, man. I miss doubles in the gap. I miss I miss crafty left-handers, man. Like Jamie Moyer, pitch until they're 49 and just get <laughs> guys out with 80 mile an hour fastballs. I yeah. loved watching Jamie Moyer pitch. I love my favorite Pedro was when Pedro pitched for the Phillies, man, when he had nothing left. He was getting guys out with like curveballs and eighty-six mile an hour fastballs, man. <laughs> he was just tricking guys. I love that.
0: That's really I mean, yeah. You, you know, I love hard throwers, but I love guys that will just trick you. Pitchers, you know. One of my the and we can. There's a lot of debate on whether or not it should have even got to this point, but but one of my favorite things about the last couple of years with the Astros is Zach Greinke. And yeah. and because he's he's just you know he's he's a little different and he's and, become
1: Pedro 09 you know yeah
0: but he'll you know it, it, the velocity's not there but he will yeah. tell you I'm about to throw a 57 mile an hour curveball yeah. and he will throw it 57 miles an hour and that's yep. the just dudes like that that are you know yeah it was fun watching Verlander and Garrett Cole um but I like the Dallas Keuchels the and the, yeah. the Greenies that I love it. The, yeah. you, you have to outthink your opponent, not just <clears throat> yeah. rear back and risk, you know, blowing out your elbow every single time you pitch.
1: I mean, I got to watch Steve Carlton in his prime when I was younger. There's not much better than that. I uh-huh. got to watch a couple of years of Roy Halliday just at his most dominant. And there was nothing better than that. I mean, that guy, It was, I remember loving him watching him pitch with the Blue Jays because he was, he had that, you know, it's he's going to trick you. He's going to make you, you know, all quadrants of the strike zone. You just didn't know what you were going to get. You know, it was really, a, you know, a game of uh, a chess game with him. And, you know, I'm not a, a huge fan of him as, as a person, but, you know, watching Curt Schilling, you know, for those years in Philly when he was dominant, there was nothing better because that guy could pitch, you know. And I think just the art of really, truly pitching, you know, has has gone away, you know, in the interest of velocity and building right. all these relievers that can throw 98 you know, I mean, it's just like, okay, I get it. You know, I, I get the strategy behind it, but is that really in the best interest of the game, you know, right. in the long haul, you know, is that really in the best interest of even developing players, you know, you're robbing them of their natural ability trying to turn them into this other thing that maybe they're not so good at, you know, there was this um, Chris Young was the pitching coach here in Philly for one year, maybe two, but, um, his his whole thing was like, you gotta attack high fastballs in the strike zone. You gotta attack guys with high fastballs in the strike zone. It's like, yeah, that's great if you're a pitcher who has the kind of stuff who can get away with that. Mm-hmm. But he was turning guys like Zach Efflin, who's a really natural sinker baller, throws a really heavy ball, gets a lot of ground balls. You know, you're making these guys into something they're not meant to be based on the skills that they have. You know, you're one size does not fit all. You know, right. so there's this with a lot of these new school philosophies, I think that's That's the premise. And that's clearly not the case. You know, that's the beautiful thing about baseball, man. You have 25 guys on a team and what one guy does as a hitter could be so completely opposite to what another guy does yet. They're equally as important to the team's fortunes, you know, same with a pitcher, you know, when the Phillies were rolling for a couple of years, you had Jamie Moyer and you had Halliday or Hamels and Cliff Lee, you know, these guys could not be more different in their styles but they matter equally to the to right. the fortunes of the team, you know. And I think there is this sort of thought process now. They're they're trying to churn out too many players with similar skill sets. And I think that's on a lot of levels. I, I think uh, that's not the way to go. On an entertainment level, on a strategic level, you know, I'm just I'm not a fan of it.
0: It's the it's the the ongoing McKinseying of of Major League Baseball. Yeah, 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 for sure. Disappointing. All right, two questions, and I'll let you go. Yeah, uh, I got nowhere to be by the way. So <laughs> I am getting hungry though. Yeah, I am too. Uh, that's, that's a big reason. Why. Are you going to have barbecue? You're going to have barbecue down there. What are you going to have? So I, in May, I went vegetarian. Oh, and, you mentioned, okay. Yeah. yeah. And in Texas, like that, that's basically, <laughs> right. you might as well be ISIS. Uh, so, and that's it, like,
1: not, that's like, not like in high school football, right?
0: <laughs> right? Yeah. So There's no barbecue, uh, but you know, there's some, some bro- I put some barbecue sauce on, on broccoli or something. There you so. go. Deep, deep fry it, yeah. <laughs> um, Houston and Philadelphia uh, have a little bit of a history, and, and more recently with trades between the Astros and the Phillies. Yeah. Um, I think the, the two major wins that I'm thinking of – actually, there's three that I'm thinking of. I don't know – there's only one that you can make the case that the Astros won it. And so between the Michael Bourne trade, the Hunter Pence trade, and the Ken Giles trade, how do you rate those <laughs> those trades as a Phillies okay. fan?
1: Well, we gotta go back. You know, there's Grimsley for Kurt Schilling,
0: you know. Oh god, yeah. That's I real. don't know how far back you want to go.
1: And and uh uh okay, hold on now. I'm trying to think of the components of the Billy Wagner deal. It's Brandon Duckworth mike costanza and jeff geary yes i can't believe i pulled those dates that's amazing head.
0: i have yeah, an astros but, blog and i couldn't have done that off the top yeah. of my head
1: and none of those guys i think and, and what oh and then hap for wait was it hap for oswald who was the oswald
0: dealer? it was hap for oswald it was hap oh God. there was somebody was else there yeah. were a couple of other guys
1: but that was that was a great thing okay so we're going, okay, so the most recent of those was Velasquez for Ken Giles.
0: Yes. That's a wash, right? And it, well, the, Also, y'all got former number one overall pick, oh, Mark Appel. Mark Appel, yeah. Yeah, there's was was a, a lot of people in that deal.
1: Right. So the, the major components of that deal were the Phillies getting Appel and Vinny and, um, and uh, Giles going to Houston. I mean, yeah, Giles, I remember him flaming out pretty quickly in Houston, too. But I'm – I'm always leery of these relievers that throw hard, man, because they all burn out. You know, there's so few relievers that even have like, you know, I mean, Mariano Rivera, the obvious exception, but you know, if you get five good years out of of a reliever, you know, at the top of their game, I mean, that's ridiculous. I guess Billy Wagner had a bunch of good years and, but they're just such fragile volatile commodities. Um, you know, Velasquez, I mean, his. I think it was his first game or his second game. Like, he struck out 16. Right. And that was April of 2016. Here we are, January of 2021. They offered him arbitration. They're still, oh, he's going to put it together eventually. He's going to, you know, it's <laughs> like, come on, man. This guy is just, they've tried him as a reliever, a start. You know, it's just, uh, I like him. Yeah, He seems like a nice guy, but it's just, it's I, some of these guys, you know, he changed the scenery. What do they say? He's a yeah. change of scenery candidate. And Appel,
0: yeah, it just never worked out for him, you know. Um, so what are the other ones then? Uh, Pence. Pence, we Pence, we got, and all. that's my turn to use the collective we. Uh, yeah. we got uh, Domingo Jared Santana, Jared Santana. Domingo Santana. Domingo Santana, yeah. Uh, Larry Green.
1: Uh, was it Larry Green?
0: It was John Singleton. John Singleton, right. And uh, Josh Zaid. Josh, I think
1: there might have been one other, but I guess Domingo Santana is like the best player to come out of, you know, and he was the player to be named
0: later. He was. And he was
1: like 17 at the time. I think he was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, man, Pence had that half a season. That looked like a That was a no brainer at the time, you know? Uh And, um, he, it was weird. Like he had like a hernia surgery in the off season. And he just, you know, really didn't round into form in 2012 and then yeah that was they just started gutting the team you know they traded him and Victorino got nothing for him essentially and well they got Tommy Joseph for him who had like a history of concussions and just never really put it (laughs) together but yeah Pence and Pence was like a quickly like a media sensation in Philly you know because I think he might have been one of the first players that was on Twitter and on Instagram and stuff and he was kind of all over it. the town fell in love with him you know and he's I think that's been the case everywhere he's played yeah and then it's just I guess the, he probably had his clearly his best success in San Francisco. You know, I mean, I, I liked him. Yeah, I'm, it's a bummer that it didn't work because I think he would have been like a great Philly player. But it was just he came in on the tail end of that thing, and and then that was it. So I would say, I guess that was that's that's a draw too, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, probably so. Yeah. yeah. And then well, What's the next one? And then uh, Michael Bourne. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Bourne and I forget who else was in that trade. Well, okay, the thing is this. Okay, so Lidge helped the Phillies win the World Series. Bourne really stood a – you know, you got to play every day in Houston, you yeah. know, and because there was just no room for him in Philly. There was, like, um, Victorino and Aaron Rowan and Worth, maybe, and somebody – there is a very – Burl – it was a crowded outfield, so they had a surplus – They dealt Bourne and Bourne, and then they traded him to Atlanta, right, I think? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and then the weird thing, too, and that was right about the time, maybe a couple years later, so they traded him in 07, 08, right about the time players like Bourne just started becoming a thing of the past, you know, these, like, slap hitting, speed demon, go get it in center field, kind of, like your Juan Piers, and, you know, you're the guys I grew up with that were, you know, every team had one in center field, you know, these guys that could go and get it, you know, and they, they, you know, kill you with like paper cuts, you know, 200 singles a year, you know, <laughs> tough at tough outs. They called them tough outs. Yeah. I love, I love Bourne. Yeah. I love his game, you know, but it's, so I would say, well, now the Phillies won that one. Yeah. There's no question about it. Cause they yeah, yeah. just won of the world series. I mean, he, he was a huge part of that team, you know? And, um, you know, you were born then—the year of the '80 championship series between right. Houston and Philly. Have you ever gone back and watched that? Or
0: <clears throat> I, I haven't, and I, oh, and I I need to.
1: That is the greatest postseason series I've ever seen, and okay. a lot well, of people yeah, well, will say it's the greatest baseball postseason series ever. Every, I think, every game, maybe four of the five games went extra innings, and it was just like one, nuts. One
0: run games, yeah. Oh yeah, it
1: was. Just, I went to the second game of that series, which the Phillies lost in extra innings. And then we had just moved into a new house. I remember watching every game on like a black and white TV in the kitchen and just crying my eyes out during game five because the Phillies were down like six to two in the eighth inning. (laughs) And Nolan Ryan's still on the mound. And next thing you know, single, 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 error, walk, you know, and game's tied. And I still watch that game every time it comes on, you know? Yeah. I, I didn't know it was possible for an eight-year-old to almost have cardiac arrest, but I, I, came, I came pretty close. But oh yeah, man, you you have to watch that. You know, that's, I'll go back
0: and watch those. It's it's like the Godfather one and two of baseball. I've read them. I mean, I've read about them, and and I'll you yeah. know, but I haven't sat down and just watched the games. It well. truly
1: is the the greatest postseason series I've ever. All due respect to like uh, the '86 World Series or the Sox coming back to beat the Yankees in the 0-4 playoffs and all that. It was yeah. Nothing touches it for my money. And All right. it's, you know, it's, it's 1980, man. The games are on in the afternoon. You know, it's like, come <laughs> on, man, like the good old days. You know, that's right. You don't have to and wait till 9 lo- o'clock. Yeah, they're on locally and they're on nationally, and it's you know,
0: that's the good cool. old days. Yeah. I need to, I need to watch those. My, my that's last right. question: yeah. What is your favorite <clears throat> baseball conspiracy?
1: Ever baseball, cons- I don't know that I have that
0: conspiracy anymore. theory. I uh, that's, well, that's- give me an example, and then maybe I do. Now I'm just sitting sort of blanket on one. Okay, so my favorite baseball conspiracy theory is that is the Cal Ripken Kevin Costner.
1: Oh conspiracy yeah. Theory. yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> so if if well, you if you don't know about this, the theory is that that Ripken <laughs> it was it was he was a he was getting close to breaking Gehrig's consecutive game streak. Uh,
1: I love he, this story. <laughs> uh,
0: he he realized he's almost in the ballpark. He realizes he forgot his glove. He goes back home and he. No hold on! Baseball- hold
1: on! Now, right there! Time out! Right there! he's bringing his glove to the, see this whole conspiracy they arrest on the sort of conceit that cal ripken brings his glove to the, like it's not at the park
0: right no no well, i yeah. i can see cal ripken being the kind of guy that had it under i guess you
1: guys are superstitious yeah okay yeah all
0: right so he goes home and he finds that kevin costner has been uh or yeah. and I, depending on which version you read he's either currently <laughs> being intimate with with cal ripken's wife or has just finished being intimate with cal ripken's wife and Cal he's Ripken, building calls- it. he's
1: building it, and they will come. Yeah. But
0: yeah. <laughs> Cal Ripken calls the Orioles and says, "I'm not coming. Uh, I, I'm not going to be there." And yeah. there's some sort of electrical malfunction where the lights <clears> won't turn on. They cancel the game, and the streak stays intact.
1: Yeah, well, great story if it's true. Um, and wasn't Randy Johnson supposed to pitch that night? They were playing the Mariners, and wasn't that part of the story too? Oh, maybe. Maybe yeah. I don't really know of any other. I don't know of any other baseball conspiracy theories, you know. But, or at least I don't have any like front of mind. But that's a good one. I, yeah, I was like, honestly, I, yeah, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's conspiracy theories in like Major League, you know, if you watch that, <laughs> you <know? laughs> which I found myself watching recently. Uh, yeah, uh, that's not a bad movie. Yeah, I, it kind of holds up.
0: It holds up, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like Jake Taylor as like the grizzled kind of, you know, or Tom Tom Berenger as the the Darren Dalton type, you know. Yeah, still playing after like twenty knee surgeries and <laughs> Lou Brown and <clears throat> Roger Dorn and Mrs. Dorn and you know. Great movie. <laughs> I, yeah, it holds up, man. I mean, what's your, what's your favorite baseball movie?
0: Uh, I mean, I, I haven't. I mean, I know like the bad one. I get like the, I have not seen trouble with the curve. Like I'm not I'm not gonna go. Yeah, I won't, Yeah, I can't go there. I can't go there. And there's the one that's that mm-hmm. it took. Who was it? Richard Linklater. That it, it it's based around oh. the Astros. And but it took them like 20 years to film because you know characters had to age and and whatnot. Oh, Boyhood. Oh no no, I, no. Or is this? I think that's what it is. Well, no, Boyhood, but there's no. There's no baseball part of boyhood,
1: but there's another, there's a movie called Everybody Wants Some, which is about like a college baseball player that Richard
0: Linklater did. I'm, I might be thinking of the Raw. It might not have been a Linklater film. Okay. But, okay. Uh, oh, I want to know then. Yeah. So, but I haven't seen that one. I mean, I guess the nostalgia of, of like Field of Dreams is cool, but yeah. it, I mean, it's gotta be Bull Durham, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, neck- honestly, for me, man, I think A League of Their Own is fantastic. That's a good win. That really you know, that man, is, really is a good one. People normally don't think it because it's, you know, it's about females playing baseball and it's not major league baseball. And yeah, you know, although Bull Durham's the minors, but yeah, I mean, it's just as far as the accuracy and the vibe of it. Bull Durham. I, I think, I don't think you get much better than that, but man, the league
0: of their own is just such a great movie. And that's, you know? a, that's actually, yeah. you can, you're right. No, that, that is, that is better than Bull Durham.
1: Yeah. I think, i mean yeah tom hanks like madonna yeah everybody's so great in that you know and it's just such a well-told story and it's you know there's sentimentality to it but there's just like great comedy to it and there's just great like baseball stuff in it you know
0: so at the end of at the end of um a league of their own it the movie ends with them in the in the baseball hall of fame Yeah. yeah and so i was talking to somebody about and they were like yeah you know uh basically they started filming after it closed. And so the hall of fame closed at five and they started filming and basically, filmed oh, wow. all night. and it took them yeah. like all night to to get whatever they needed, but you can still see like one of my best friends, his dad uh, was a senior vice president of the, of the hall of fame for a really long time. Um, and, and you can see him just kind of milling around in the background. Cause they just need oh, wow. people walking. So that you're, you're right. That is, that is the best one.
1: Yeah. I don't think it's a, well, yeah, it's that and Boulder.
0: I, it's a toss up, you know? Yeah.
1: It's a, toss. Yeah, that's a good up. call.
0: Yeah. Either, either one will work. I won't turn either of them off if they're on. Yeah.
1: Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. So, well, Pat, thank you so much. This is a ton of fun. I really appreciate it. Let's, uh, I think we've got, we've got enough to talk about. We can do this again.
1: Yeah. I I think we barely
0: scratched the surface really, but yeah, oh, for sure.
1: uh, th- th- this has been a lot of fun and let's hope, you know, there's uh we're, we're actually at a ballpark sometime within the next year i don't know that it's going to be this near you, you know 2021 necessarily but i'll take 2022 at, at, you know at this point so yeah for sure I just, I just i miss going to baseball games man and where i live now i could it'd be a long walk but i could probably walk to citizens bank park from where i live right now that's cool. so of course you know nothing to walk there for but <laughs> you know yeah yeah but uh you know i'm 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 jones and man i'm jones and
0: yeah. I miss I'm playing for... shows.
1: I miss going to ball game. All the stuff we've talked about,
0: you know? Yep. I'm ready for live music it. and baseball games. I'm ready. Yeah. All that stuff. All right, man. Well, dude,
1: hold it down, down there. Hopefully I'm down there again. One of these days again soon. We'll, we'll sneak off to a Rangers game before my gig or something. Like we did that the was last awesome. time. And yeah, Heck yeah, that was good. And uh, yeah, man, thanks for, thanks for having me. And uh, you know, we'll catch up. Yep. Have a good one. All right, dude. Later, man.